0: may devote yourselves to prayer but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one from one kind and one from another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, They should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion.
1: Father, this morning, as your word is spoken, I pray for your blessing upon it. I pray, Father, that you will guide me and help me as I strive to teach your word in accordance with the truth. And, Father, I pray for those here this morning who are listening. I pray, Father, that you will help them, that you will give them understanding, that you will take the words that are spoken through me, And give understanding to them in their hearts. And I pray that they will be obedient and receptive. It's through Jesus I pray. Amen. Last week we explored God's Word in regard to sexual purity. Last week's point was that God's Word is not that difficult to understand in regard to sexual purity. It's one man and one woman for life. Or... A better way to remember it, one husband, one wife for life. It kind of rhymes. I kind of like that one better. And, of course, the difficulty is living according to that teaching, and the sad truth is many of us have not. Tony and I were uh, talking this week and uh, about the timing, actually, of these two messages on sexual purity in conjunction with the release of yesterday's, uh, movie Fifty Shades of Grey. I don't know how many of you have heard of that. Have you heard of that movie, the book? You don't really want to admit that you've heard of it. I mean, I really didn't know when the movie was supposed to be released because I don't I don't watch a lot of movies, um, so I did not purposefully coordinate these messages with the release of the movie because I'm I'm not that smart. But the Holy Spirit apparently is. What I've read and heard about it is it's very disturbing from a sexual purity perspective. In fact, from God's perspective, it's quite disgusting. And it completely perverts the beauty God designed the sexual relationship to be between a husband and a wife. When you pervert something that God intended for good, you are going to pay a very steep, price for that. And I would hope that you would not want to see a movie that glorifies sin and perversion. We have really no business as God's holy representatives supporting that kind of so-called entertainment. So that's my soapbox for this morning. What I want to examine this morning is primarily the 7th chapter of 1 Corinthians. So if you want to turn to there and follow along, please do. Because in that chapter, Paul responds to questions raised by the Corinthians in regard to sex and marriage. And unfortunately, this is where the teaching is not as easy or clear as we would like for it to be. And what I mean is not everyone agrees on the interpretation of what Paul has written. New Testament scholars who study the Bible constantly, who, who study the original languages, who study the cultural practices of that day and time, don't all agree on what Paul has written in 1 Corinthians 7. So, you know, we can't expect to all be in total agreement on it either. All I ask this morning is for some respect and consideration as I share with you my understanding, which, to be honest with you, comes mainly from what I've read. And if you would like to discuss it later, I would be happy, more than happy, to discuss it with you. If your conscience disagrees with how I interpret or present Paul's writings this morning, then you have an obligation to follow your conscience, just as I have an obligation to follow mine. But I promise to give you a little grace, and I ask you to extend a little grace to me as well now i know you're really worried about what i'm going to say this morning first corinthians 7 verse 1 paul wrote now concerning the matters about which you wrote wouldn't it have been nice to have had the letter the corinthians wrote to paul to help us you know so we can kind of understand to what he is you know responding because it would have been extremely helpful in understanding why Paul wrote what he did. And the question that I believe it raises is why didn't God make it clear? Why didn't he preserve that letter? So we could completely understand exactly what Paul was writing and why. So maybe, maybe, and here's, this is just a, a guess. Maybe he knew we would turn it into a law. You know, laws are helpful. Uh, But but they cannot be applied the same way to every situation. That's kind of what I think Jesus meant uh, when he said in Mark 2.27, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. You you think about that. In other words, the law about the Sabbath uh, uh, really was created to benefit man, not burden him. Uh, and, And that's true really about all laws. That's why all laws were given. To benefit us, to help us, not to burden us. It's important to understand, again, I think I mentioned this last week, but if you weren't here, there was a lot of sexual immorality in Corinth during Paul's time. You know, even their pagan religions encouraged it. I mean, it became part of their religious beliefs. That's how far askew the world was at that time. I mean, sometimes I think we think it's worse today than it's ever been, but all you have to do is read the Bible and you find out, no, that's not true. It was really bad back then, too, maybe even worse. So Paul answers their questions here. Verse 1, he says, It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of sexual temptations, each man should have his own wife, each woman her own husband. So, you know, possibly one of the questions the Corinthians had you know, these new Christians that were converted in Corinth was, you know, should Christians even engage in sexual relations or, you know, make something to that effect? And Paul's answer was, you know, it's good not to. But due to the temptations of sexual immorality, he says, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife, each wife with her husband. And so, again, it's the one husband, one wife for life pattern that god has laid down but paul even took it a step further here in verses three through five indicating that the husband and wife and this you heard some of this a moment ago as it was read don't even have the option of withholding sexual relations in a married relationship paul indicates that each has a responsibility to fulfill the sexual desires of their mate now when i'm doing premarital counseling and i tell people i I tell couples that you know, because we read from the Bible, what you know, what scriptures say about the husband-wife relationship, and I read that part about, you know, you have an. I look at the guy and I say, you have an obligation, to fulfill the sexual desires of your mate. And I look at her, and and it's, it, I just love to see the expression on his face when I tell him that, because usually his his eyes get big, and he's hard, having a real hard time keeping from smiling when I when I when I tell them that, that you have that obligation. I thought that would be hilarious. I guess you guys. Guess you've got to have been there, I guess. One of the purposes of that – there's a lot of coughing going all of a sudden – is that they will not be tempted. Here's the purpose for that, that you have an obligation to fulfill the desires of, of your mate is because you, – so you won't be tempted to commit sexual immorality, meaning they would not be tempted to go to someone else to have their sexual desires fulfilled because their mate refuses to meet their need for some reason. Paul then goes on in verse 6. He says, now this is an interesting verse. Now, as a concession, not a command, I say this. He then says in verse 7, I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God. One of one kind, one of another. Paul's gift, he was single. He had never married. And Paul didn't want to make it a command because the celibate life and abstaining from marriage and sexual relations he believed was a gift from God. That's what he says here. And not everyone has that gift. Paul believed that not everyone has the gift to be able to remain single in order to totally devote their life to God. And I think that's maybe one of the problems that that, that Catholicism has had with their priests. You know, not everyone, as Paul indicates here, is gifted with the ability to live the single life. And when you try to force that model on everyone, it just doesn't work in in many instances. Paul's concession continues in verse 8 and 9. He says, To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it's good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it's better to marry... Than to burn with passion. Now, here's where it gets a little dicey. Some scholars believe that the word unmarried here refers to those who have become single again, because he discusses those who have not yet married later on in the chapter. Single again would refer to those who have been not just widowed, but also divorced. Other scholars believe it only refers to widowers and widows, which he mentions, that he's only really speaking about widowers and widows. So he's only talking about being single again because of death and not those who have been divorced. So there's people in both camps. Now, one of the problems with the word unmarried only referring to widowers in that verse is that there was a Greek word for widower, which was used in the common Greek language at that time. But it's not used here. In fact, it's not used anywhere in the New Testament. The other problem in in regard to limiting the word unmarried to a widower is that the Greek word for unmarried refers to an unmarried man or woman, according to the Greek lexicon. So if the word unmarried only applies to a man or woman whose spouse died, why add the word widow in that instance? That's why I believe... That the word unmarried refers to those husbands who have become single again through divorce and death as well as wives who have become single again through divorce and the death of their spouse. So what I think Paul is saying is that if you're single again and you don't have the gift of living single and devoting yourself totally to God, it's better to marry than to burn with passion and possibly commit sexual immorality. See, God wants sexual relations to stay within the context of marriage. Then he addresses those who are married, and he emphasized that this is the Lord's will in verses 10 and 11. To the married I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. Now, the word separate there for the wife means the same as divorce here in this context because it says she should remain unmarried or single again. So Paul's advice is if you're married, do not get a divorce. If a wife divorces her husband, she has two choices. She re- should remain single or else reconcile with her husband. So you know, so Paul here is simply reiterating God's plan of sexual purity for, for those who are married. One Man or one husband, one wife for life. So if the word unmarried here does mean those who have become single again, either through death or divorce, Paul says, Paul says, as far as I'm concerned, you can remarry if you do not have the gift of celibacy or or living single, or you can't control your sexual desire. So from here, Paul moves on to address those Christians who are married to a non-Christian in verses 12 through 16. Let's just read that. He says, To the rest I say, I, not the Lord. That's an interesting statement. I, not the Lord. That if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife. The unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, divorces, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved, or your version may say bound. God has called you to peace. Verse 16, for how do you know, wife? Whether you'll save your husband. Or how do you know, husband, whether you'll save your wife? So th- this might give us another hint as to what one of the questions, you know, was that the Corinthians asked Paul. Like, now that I'm a Christian, you know, should I be yoked to an unbelieving spouse? You know, Paul's answer is here, well, yes, if they're willing to stay married to you. So. It's not wrong to marry or stay married to an unbelieving spouse. Is it the best scenario? No. It's better not to be yoked to an unbeliever, as Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 6.14. But if you're married to an unbeliever, Paul says that's okay, and here's the reason why. Verse 14, the believing spouse forms a holy union with the unbelieving spouse. It doesn't mean that the unbelieving spouse is saved it just means that through the one flesh relationship, the unbelieving spouse is made holy because of that holy Christian spouse. Paul kind of used a similar analogy in Romans eleven sixteen when he was describing the relationship between Abraham and the Jews. He wrote, "If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump." In other words. Well, I'll I'll read the rest of this. And if the root is holy, so are the branches, the first fruits, And root represent Abraham. The lump and the branches represent Israel. So because Abraham was counted as righteous or holy before God, the Jews were a holy people also before God. So when a Christian is married to a non-Christian, Paul says that's a holy relationship because of the Christian. However, verse 15, if the unbelieving spouse does not want to be married to a Christian, then it's okay to divorce, and you're free from that relationship. Because marriage is a mutual relationship. You know, if one of the two no longer wants to stay married or stay in that relationship, Paul says, you know, it's permissible to let them go. Otherwise, there's not going to be any peace. And that's not what God wants. God wants peace in the family. Why? Paul writes, verse 16, because you don't know whether or not you're going to be successful in converting your spouse. You know, in a marriage relationship between a Christian and a non-Christian, Christ actually works through the Christian spouse to try to bring to faith the non-Christian spouse. But there's no guarantee that that's going to happen. So, you know, he says it's okay to let that non-Christian spouse go and to divorce them. And my interpretation of that is that the Christian is then free to remarry based on what Paul said earlier about unmarried people. And if being single is not your gift, then get married, he says, so that that you won't be tempted to commit sexual immorality. Okay. I know that some of you are going to take issue with me on this interpretation. And I don't want you walking out of here saying, well, Todd said you could just divorce and remarry as much as you want if you can't control yourself. Okay. I know I know it happens. I want to make it very clear today. I believe in God's plan. I believe you should follow God's plan and anyone who doesn't sins against God. Anyone who hasn't sinned against God. You should never go into a marriage thinking, well, you know, if it just doesn't work out, I'll just get a divorce and then remarry. You should never do that. You should never go into a marriage thinking that it's not god's plan one of the interpretations of, of malachi chapter 2 verse 16 says god hates divorce he hates it because it's disobedience it's unfaithfulness and because it wreaks havoc on families for generations and on communities and, and, and i also think he hates it because of what it does to children You know, the scars of divorce go much deeper in children than they do in adults. I I just believe it breaks God's heart when parents divorce and children are the the ones who really suffer from it. No child, no child should have to be told your mom or your dad is not going to live with you anymore. No child. I believe that in Paul's letter to Corinth, God is addressing the culture of that time when marriages were arranged by parents. Uh, Today, God may be thinking about a 16-year-old girl who was abused by her parents or or did not receive the love from her parents that she so deserved, fell in love with an 18-year-old boy had sexual relations, became pregnant, had a baby, got married, and then two years later realized this was a horrible mistake and got divorced. Can she remarry? She's 18 years old. Do her sexual desires dissipate? No. Does she have the gift of living single the rest of her life totally devoted to God? Probably not. I believe Paul is saying, if you don't have that gift, rather than burn with passion, get married and this time follow my plan. You know, there was a woman in the Bible who had the gift of celibacy in Luke 2. She married, but her husband died after only seven years. And she remained single for the next 84 years. That's in Luke 2 there aren't very many women who can do that. There aren't very many men who can do that either. No one is excusing sin, including me here this morning. But let's face it, every one of us continues to sin. And God is fully aware of that. God's plan for marriage was not intended to ruin your life. It was intended to bless your life. God's plan is obviously the best plan, no question about it. It brings the greatest blessing to you if you follow God's plan. But there are occasions when the plan is not followed. It just didn't work in that couple's life. And and I like to think, I like just to remember who God is. He is a God who desires mercy, not sacrifice. If that's what he wants from us, then he's going to set that example. Now, I know that some of you are going to take a very hard stance on this and say, no, there are no exceptions. When you read the Scriptures, you find out that actually God makes quite a few exceptions on a lot of different things. So Paul's teaching on sexual purity isn't really that different from God's plan. You know, Jesus taught God's plan. God's plan was do not divorce. Don't marry someone who has divorced. If you do divorce, stay single or reconcile. You know, Paul said the same thing, but Paul also realized he was going to have to deal with husbands and wives who didn't follow God's plans just like Moses had to deal with them. Paul said it's better not to have sexual relations at all. I mean, you want to talk about sexual purity? That's sexual purity. But that's not the way God designed us. So Paul understood that. And I believe Paul understood that because... God understood that. God is the one who created man and woman. God is the one who created marriage. God is the one who created sexual relations. The best plan to follow is his plan. I hope I've said it enough times this morning. But I believe that for those who, for one reason or another, failed to follow his plan, he made some concessions, which Paul lays out here in this chapter. Remember, marriage was made for man, not man for marriage. Marriage is not supposed to be a burden. It's supposed to be a blessing to your life. And so that's where I am right now with this. But I'm I'm not going to stop seeking the truth. I'm not going to think I figured it out, and so I don't have to study that anymore. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to always be willing to listen to someone who has a more accurate, sensible translation than I do. Interpretation, I guess I should say. I'm willing to listen. And I hope you were, too, this morning. When my wife Kim worked for a foster care and adoption agency back in um, years ago, Uh, she witnessed parents who literally kicked their teenage daughters out of the house when they became pregnant, out of wedlock. You know, when we fail or refuse to follow God's will, there is a price to pay. It's a steep price to pay. And our Heavenly Father, he may disown you. He may let you go. When you sin against him. But if you'll confess your sins. And repent of them. Your heavenly father will forgive you. And he will accept you back like it never happened. What a blessing. What a blessing to have a father like that. You know we we shame him by our actions. But he's willing to take us back like it never happened. Now the consequences may not disappear. But the sin does. He takes it away. Everybody makes mistakes. God is fully aware of that because our flesh is weak. So this morning, if you've experienced the weakness of the flesh, and I know that all of you have, you need to come back to God and lay your burden down before him. If you're carrying a load of guilt that you just can't get rid of, give it to him. Give it to him this morning, laid at his feet. He will take you back. He will forgive you. He will welcome you as we stand and sing this morning.